our company, like most companies, we have core values, and we just added a fourth core value, and it's embrace change. Our company and our board said we are going to reinvent our company in the years and decades to come, and it's complicated to do while you have to keep the lights on and the gas flowing at an affordable rate. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about the future of energy with three of the nation's most prestigious electric utilities. Earlier this summer, I was approached by the Carolinas chapter of the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, or NAYGN. They asked if I was interested in speaking at their conference later in July. What was going to be a quick 20 minutes about the podcast morphed into an hour-long panel on energy policy that they asked me to host. With only a few weeks to spare, we were able to get three incredible guests, all from major utilities and all with some impressive projects under their belts. The conference was hosted by Duke Energy here in Charlotte. If you're interested, there are slides for all the questions I asked, which you can download on energy-cast.com. The audio is hot in a few places, but I think you'll find the conversation fascinating. I hope you enjoy my conversation on the future of energy. We have Jay Downhauer for the Future of Energy session. Uh, Jay is a project manager in the utility industry. For the past two years, he has hosted the EnergyCast podcast and produced over 65 episodes. Jay served as a consultant with the TXU Energy Communications team during their 2007 private equity buyout, which remains the largest in financial history. In Austin, he was executive director of the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas and helped pass incentives legislation signed by now DOE Secretary Rick Perry. Prior to joining the utility industry, Jay served as a project manager in the oil and gas sector, developing water cycling technologies for the fracking industry. This is Jay Dallenhauer. Afternoon, everybody. How's the ice cream? <laughs> well, thank you, Tyler. And as Tyler mentioned, I work upstairs, like many of you. Uh, for the past year and a half, it's been my pleasure to serve as a contractor for the Carolinas West Transmission Team. And many of y'all are here today. I appreciate y'all coming down. For the past two years, as he said, I've hosted also the Energy Cast podcast. And my first episode was in March of 2017. And my first guest was Duke Energy. So I like to tell a lot of people that I interviewed Duke before they interviewed me. And does anyone know how many podcasts there are out there? Just podcasts. Anybody? How many? Well, I thought it was a lot fewer than that. Turns out there are 750,000 podcasts out there with 30 million episodes. It's quite a bit. <laughs> a few of them talk about energy. That's true. But I don't feel that they give an equal amount of weight to all forms of energy. So that includes you guys in nuclear. That includes coal. That includes oil and gas. So two years ago, when there were maybe, I don't know, about half a million podcasts out there, Climate Cast was taken as a name, Solar Cast, you get the idea, but not Energy Cast. And so I snatched that name right up. Look, I think that climate is just as important an issue as everybody else. But here's what I think is more compelling. 
And that's this conversation about taking the dozen or so energy families out there and discussing ways to eliminate their drawbacks. So CO2 with fossil fuels, renewable energy intermittency, and the upfront expense of nuclear, which we're going to talk about today. And when you remove those sets of drawbacks and recalibrate the math, when it comes to the future of the portfolio, the choices are endless. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's what's really, really exciting about our panelists. So let's go ahead and introduce them. We're going to do it by the distance in which they traveled to be here today. We're really excited about that. Our first guest serves as the Senior Energy Policy Director for Dominion Energy. He has been part of the company since 1995 when he was with Consolidated Natural Gas. They merged with Dominion in 2000. For 10 years, he managed Dominion's Federal Affairs Office in D.C. He now manages the company's strategies on the state and local level. He's a North Dakota native, but now lives just outside the Beltway. Please help us welcome, there in the middle, Bruce McKay. <clears throat> and our second guest, I feel like I'm introducing boxers here. <laughs> Our second guest serves as the Governmental Relations Manager for Georgia Power, a division of Southern Company, right? Uh, responsible for implementing statewide strategies around energy environmental issues. He served as Environmental Issues and Air Quality Manager for Environmental Affairs and has been advisor on a number of capacities on those issues throughout his career. He's a Georgian through and through, though he told me he was born in Texas. Not too bad. <laughs> he lives in Atlanta, graduated from Georgia Southern. When I asked the Nuclear Energy Institute who I should invite, they told me, you need to get this guy. And so I want you to all help me welcome Mr. Ronnie Just, Georgia Power. And then our last guest came from just across the street. <laughs> He's the Senior Vice President of Corporate Regulatory Strategy for Duke Energy, where he is responsible for doing just that, as well as market fundamentals and load forecasting. He joined Florida Progress in 1984, which, kind of like what we talked about earlier, then became Progress, then merged with Duke in 2012. He also had a brief stint in the 2000s in Allegheny Energy, originally from the D.C. area. I would say you'd be described as a charlatan by way of Florida. <laughs> no, I've been here six years. I'm local. Okay, that's right. I'm three years. I'm almost local, I guess. When we were playing this session and we needed a Duke Energy representative, they told me, you got to get this guy, and I think you agree. This is Pete Toomey, everybody. Please welcome him. All right, so let's get to it. So I'm going to frame this on a couple of the episodes that I've done, and we can comment along. And we've got a lot of material to cover. We want to try to get as many of the audience out here to ask questions as possible. So if we can ask for your TV soundbite answers, that would probably be the best way to go. So my latest episode was with Office of Nuclear Energy, Ed McGinnis. And the original pitch for this, they actually pitched me on this episode. I'm so glad to actually be able to interview Ed. Uh, it was on small modular reactors, SMRs. And every time we asked a question, the conversation seemed to go back to SMRs. He made it very clear he felt SMRs play a dominant role in the future of nuclear energy. And this is what he had to say about that. What nuclear energy is honing in on it, that is bringing in the small modular reactors, that way utilities don't have to bet the farm by deciding to go with a large nuclear reactor that may cost six to eight billion per unit. Many utilities just cannot do that. The beauty of small modular reactors is small can be large. You can scale up. 
So they're smaller, but they can also be big. Do we as a panel share their enthusiasm? Thoughts? Starting this order. So a lot of great ideas come our way, don't they? But we have to build state, not of the art, but of the shelf. You got to be able to procure, plan and procure what it is. SMRs are the leading edge. I happen to be in the middle of building Plant Vogel, a traditional AP1000 unit. We've got to get it done before SMRs can see the light of day. Yeah. Well, for Dominion Energy's sake, we have a, a number of nuclear units, as people in this room know. We are fully permitted to add another reactor in Virginia at our North Anna plant, but I, we have no plans to do so. I think if we went to our regulator right now, they would say, well, looking down south, uh, you know, the challenge is there. Uh, why don't you just go put up another one of those combined cycle plants? And then we'd say, well, those are nice, but maybe we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. And they would say, you just go ahead and do another 1,200, 1,500 megawatt combined cycle for the time being anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from our standpoint, I think we think SMRs are farther out there, of course. We're much more interested in our existing nuclear plants and keeping those running. You know, that's more what we see in our immediate future at Duke, for sure. All right. Let's talk about Vogel. We've got Southern Company here. We've got Georgia Power. Hey, as a group, we all like Vogel, right? Let's show them what we think about Vogel. That's impressive. Yeah. USA, USA. <laughs> In my McGinnis interview, we had a lot of hot Vogel talk as well. He seemed to believe that if we can just get Vogel done, the industry will have a much easier time building large nuclear projects in the future. Ronnie, do you agree with that? I sure hope I agree with that. So uh, I have been working on this project for more than a decade. I mean, it literally, ask my wife if you don't believe it. And I mean, honestly, in fact, maybe the next slide will speak to that in a second. But I remember when Dick Cheney as vice president was saying, we're gonna build hundreds of these things. I remember when there was a waiting list by utilities and at the NRC and with the reactor vessel fabricator shops that we were going to have more than we could imagine. This is the kind of incurable romantic I am, <laughs> taking your wife to a nuclear plant. Um, she seems just as enthusiastic. Oh, she's wife. very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I tell folks that when I began working on Plant Vogel, if I sent you a text message from my very smart iPhone at the time, it would autocorrect the word fracking because it wasn't in my smartphone's vocabulary. It's taken ISO 12 and an iPhone 8 for me to be able to not autocorrect the word fracking. It changed everything, as you very well know. But here's what we have absolutely come to know, and it's why we know that our commission has commit continually at each hurdle we face, bankruptcy of Westinghouse, unilateral renegotiations by one of our partners after 10 years of working together. The reason people have stuck in is because it's bigger than just a nuclear plant. And you know the arguments, you know the both national and international security implications of this matter. You know you don't get CO2 reductions if, at scale if you don't have nuclear in the mix. Uh, to your specific question, we are absolutely convinced that this industry is riding on our shoulders. Our labor partners that are in the middle of this understand this. I will tell you this, and I think we're coming up on the Tour de France. Y'all know how they do that, you know, cycler will get way out front, pedal, 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 and then somebody on his team will pull back around and he'll draft behind them for a while. 
I'm getting tired of peddling, team. <laughs> so what is the sad thing, and I'll conclude with this, is that I've got 5,000 highly skilled workers that have honed their efficiencies on Unit 3 at Plant Vogel and are now bringing it to bear at Unit 4 at Plant Vogel. We desperately need as a nation to shift that workforce to build another, if not large-scale EP-1000, they need to be moving on to other things. And I, I think it's unrealistic to think to continue to build gas. Are you familiar with the difficulty of building pipelines, by the way? Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we just think it's important. But yeah, short answer is, yeah, absolutely. Vogel's got to get completed, and it's going to get completed. Well, I know you got this whole group here cheering for you. I'm going to do this as we go on. Let's get the mic. Does anyone have any questions about nuclear at this point? We're going to kind of move to all the different families around. So why don't we do one or two questions there? Paul Rohde, I'm a test engineer over Vogel 3 and 4. Oh, um, hey, one of the big things uh, was, uh, so VC Summer 2 and 3, obviously it's about 60% done. Is there a time frame that any of the companies or a conglomerate of companies could go in on VC Summer and think about finishing that unit because there'll be about 8,000 workers that'll be qualified, you know, uh, maintenance guys that'll be really good at work? I'll let y'all take that first. And one real quick point here. I work in the transmission group. I have a lot of people from VC Summer and all that. Put, show of hands, who worked on VC Summer who's here? Thank y'all. I know Look it's at that. tough. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> well, uh, you know, as was mentioned, I worked for Dominion Energy and we merged with SCANA earlier in the year. We closed the deal. Uh, this is far beyond my pay grade of sort, of course, but we had told the commission and the elected leaders at the time that we had no plans to do anything and, and to move forward with the unit down there. Sad to say, things could always change. A consortium, who knows? But as of right now, uh, our company does not plan to. You asked the question that I was hoping that someone would ask, so we'll uh, keep moving right now. We'll have plenty of chances to uh, ask questions, but moving forward, I want to talk a lot about storage, because when you can't talk about renewable without talking about storage. So back in March, Bruce, I had the chance to visit the Bath County Pumped Hydro Storage Facility. I know that's not the proper name, but the one on the Virginia, West Virginia state line, and this holds the distinction of being the largest battery, if you will, largest storage facility on earth. It can run at three gigawatts, which by itself, it's already bigger than Hoover Dam and is the 10th largest power plant on its own. So let's start with you. Tell us what that means for you. And then for the other two panels, let's talk a little bit about this idea of we want storage, but what about the more mechanical storage like uh, pumped hydro storage, compressed air energy storage? What does that mean for the grid, especially for renewables? Well, the uh facility that you mentioned, Bath County, it is the largest in the world. We are very proud of it. It is a very important part of our, our fleet uh, that nobody knows about. A lot of employees in our company aren't even very familiar with it. Um, but to in uh, three, four, five minutes go from no generation to 3,000 megawatts of power in the morning when the lights come on and the peak demand, the morning peak uh, starts to climb is just priceless. And it was constructed and went operational back in the mid-80s. Really at that time it was using coal-fired and, and nuclear power in the middle of the night when demand was low and the price was very low to, to fill up the upper reservoir. Uh, it runs twice a day in the morning peak and the evening peak. And I'm assuming everybody knows something about pump storage two reservoirs pump it up fill it up at night and run it down in the morning we wouldn't have imagined at that time that it can 
play a new role going forward to help back up intermittent renewables. So it will take on an even more important life, and we'll talk in a few minutes about how we may be doing something similar elsewhere. But it's a tremendous facility. So we also have pump storage in the mountains, Bad Creek and Jocassee, and it was originally built to optimize the production out of the nuclear units so that they can run even though the demand kind of cycles. We would love to have more and more pump storage. To your point, lithium ion is great for about four hours. We need storage that lasts longer than that. Lithium ion is real expensive. Pump storage, if you could get more permitted, I think would be a great thing. One issue that we have is geography. The pump storage is in the mountains, where the storage you can pump it up or down a hill. Not so good in Florida. We've got a service territory there. Wouldn't help much. In North Carolina, almost all of our solar is way in the east. So to use that actively to help manage the intermittency would be difficult for us. So we see there is going to be a mix of lithium-ion shorter storage. We might put that closer to the intermittent generation to help manage the system. We would love more pump storage because the whole world's looking for cost-effective long-term storage, and there aren't many places you can get it. I'd just quickly add, similar pump storage in Georgia for nuclear optimization. We've exploited all the locations that it could be built. Our most recent IRP calls for 80 megawatts of battery storage. I've been with the utility business for 34 years. I couldn't have imagined what a battery that size would look like, and we're siting them obviously near solar and such. And I remind my environmental friends of this that, you know, these things have consequences because batteries literally become competitive with solar. They actually drive solar out of the market because nighttime operations of base load are going to charge those batteries and their availability is going to come on at the same time then solar comes in. We think it's an important role. We think storage in general is going to be the great disruptor in our industry. What it means long term, we don't know. We don't think lithium ion is ultimately the scalable, large scale disruptor that other technologies yet to come could be. Yeah, and that leads us right into the lithium ion now. I think a lot of us had this idea that battery storage is going to look something like this all the time. Uh, Big lithium ion batteries and connex boxes. I had the privilege of entering interviewing this guest that's right in our backyard, Pete, up in Concord. They didn't last that long, but no shortage of enthusiasm there. It was an interesting facility. They'd taken over the Philip Morris enormous, like, two million square foot facility. They actually shot Hunger Games in there. And real quick answer, because we kind of covered this, but yes or no, what do you feel about this? Do you see lithium, you know, these battery technologies playing a, almost a generation type role or do we see them playing a little bit smaller role and there was a lot of guests that I've had that said that really rather than this kind of model that batteries need to be more behind the meter in garages backing up say rooftop solar or something. Real quick I, I go that. with your suggestion yeah. of behind the meter. Mm-hmm. Until there's a big jump in technology. I wrote something down that I didn't even believe until I read it yesterday that there's currently 1200 megawatts cumulatively of battery storage in the U.S. Yeah, stunning. Stunning. 1,200 megawatts, mostly owned by utilities. To hear some of our environmental groups talk, 
who say we should do nothing other than renewables and battery, you would think there's a lot more of it today and there'll be a lot more tomorrow. Got a long uh, way to go. A long way to go. I agree. Obviously, there's not much here today. Everybody is looking at what's going to happen in the next five years, 10 years. Uh, I think everyone in the renewable community who's pushing renewables understands the importance of storage to kind of treat at least some of the intermittency and how important it is that you're eventually able to add it. So it plays a role and it's hyped in that sense for a specific reason. But I, I think it'll have a role in the portfolio in the future. I think short-term storage, if it can be cost-effective, whether it's behind the meter or in front of the meter, I, I think it'll have a place in our portfolio. Yeah. Bruce, speaking of renewables, this is really exciting. I heard about this when we went to Bath, but this is the offshore wind project. And okay, so there's state waters, national waters, international waters, and I believe this is in national waters? Federal, federal waters. Federal, yep. Thank you, federal waters. Yep. Tell us about this and what this means for the East Coast. Yep, so what you see up there on the picture was from a couple weeks ago. The governor was there and our CEO, and it was a groundbreaking, but it was more of a sandbreaking because you, you're not going <laughs> to go out in the water and turn water, so you're going to go out on the sand and turn some sand. It marked sort of the physical, the beginning of the physical construction related to the two test turbines that were first putting offshore Virginia Beach. Two may not sound like much, but two six megawatt each and $300 million to put these two out there because there is no supply chain. We have to do all the onshore facilities. These will be test turbines 27 miles offshore just beyond where you might see them. We have to run a new cable out there. It is very exciting. We have leased, I have to look at my notes, 100 12,000 acres of federal land out there. We could go as much as 2,000 megawatts of offshore wind down the road if these first two prove out. It was harder than you think to find space out there. The, the shippers have claim, the military, they go out and drop bombs and other sting, things offshore there. The fishermen have their land. So even though the ocean is big, federal government does find some areas that, okay, this is where you can lease. It's not all available out there. But we did, we did win the lease. I think that's funny about the fishermen because anybody who's ever fished in the Gulf of Mexico knows best fishing's around the rigs, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Pete, my first episode, I said this earlier, was the Duke Energy Renewable Control Center. This is really cool. It's in the NASCAR building. And you guys are monitoring, we are monitoring renewable resources east to west, all the way out in California. So what's the advantage of an entity like Duke monitoring assets remotely, sometimes on the other side of the country? What kind of gains can they receive? Um, well, that's, that's part of our commercial renewables business. Yeah. They do that for profit and we provide O&M services and those monitoring services are part of that. So uh, a lot of people own renewables. They might own one project. They might own a couple of projects in different parts of the country. And monitoring is a key activity that helps them say, what needs maintenance? What do I need to do with it? And we provide that service for a lot of the participants in the industry. So that uh, operating center, monitoring center, we monitor for a fee for people. Yeah, it's really exciting. It was, it was very cool to see. It's kind of like a NASA control center in there. It's, it's cool. I'm going to go ahead and break for renewables and storage. Anybody have any questions about that? All right. Let's go. You, you, I think you're first one. Yeah, so I have kind of two questions here. So first was on the pump storage. Like for 3,000 megawatts of electricity, what kind of runtime can you get out of that? I mean, that's, that's kind of the big thing, right? I hear the numbers like 12 minutes or four minutes that we can run, but I assume it's a lot longer for those pump storage sites. Do you know kind of what that rough number is? You may have learned. Two days. 
48 hours. 48 hours, okay. So yeah, like, you just, like 300 megawatts. It was insane. Yeah. It, it was no small potato. Yeah, I thought it was less than that, but you were just there and just interviewed, so I'll go with your number. Well, the compressed air energy storage plan in Texas is is even bigger than that, so okay. very impressive. Yeah. Okay. We had one more. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the other question I had was for that offshore that you guys have put in and stuff. So you said 2,000 megawatts electric. Do you know like the rough cost to put that out there? Is like capital. Well, basically, so the question is, is capital close to nuclear right, on that? So we don't know yet. Don't know yet. <laughs> 300 million for the first two, but a lot of that is because it's the first two. We're going to spend probably a billion dollars uh, in the next year and a half. All that's, yeah, all that's involved in doing the, the base work to get ready for this. 2,000 megawatts, I've not heard an all-in number of what it would cost for that. Now, once you get it out there, the fuel is free, okay? But I'll also say offshore wind, the, the maintenance is pretty great. It's expensive to build because you're working in water. It's expensive to maintain because you're working in water. The elements are rough. It's, you know, salt water, wind, storms. Every bit of work you do, someone has to go out in a boat, special equipment training and all that. But we've told our stakeholders who want us to do this, yes, we'll do it, but we do have to be able to recover those costs. The State Corporation Commission, which is what our utility commission in Virginia is called, they approved our two turbines, and they were spitting mad as they did it. They were very clear in their ruling. We would not have done this had the legislature not told us we had to. Hmm. Okay. uh, I I was just going to say one thing about the supply chain. A lot of people in the U.S. are looking at offshore wind, and when does it become economical? You know, you've seen on the East Coast, starting up in New England, and it's kind of becoming trendy the way state public policy sometimes can. You know, you're getting Massachusetts, I can do 1,000 megawatts, someone wants to do 1,200 megawatts, and it's kind of coming down the coast. And people believe we'll eventually have an offshore services industry and wind the way they have in the North Sea in Europe that would reduce some of those costs over time. So in the similar way, after you build the first couple AP1000s, you know, if it progresses, costs will come down. So as people think about this, everyone's trying to guess how much of all this gets done in the future and how does that work with costs. Moving on to transmission. So, hey, show of hands, who, who's, who are the boys? Where, where's, where's transmission at? Boys and girls. <laughs> Got a lot of people from transmission here, and I wanted to bring that up. That's not me. I look, that guy looks way better in a hard hat than I do. Tell me, all the panelists here, tell me about the climate in your territories, because it really does seem that it's more attractive right now to focus on investing in transmission than generation. I mean, think about it. There's a lot of good things you could say. Uh, Cybersecurity, you're providing more transmission for more distributed assets like solar and wind farms. So uh, on the public policy side, I would think that makes a whole lot of sense. So kind of tell us down the line how we feel about transmission right now. So siding's always the challenge. We just built a major rebuilt line in Atlanta. Very, very challenging. It served CDC. It had to be rebuilt, but we faced public opposition. With the closing of coal plants, we've had to overbuild transmission to, you know, fill holes in the voltage dips and such. The rate case that we just filed has a significant part of it associated with infrastructure build-out. So we're, we're spending a lot of money in that space. I think it's important. Has anyone here read or heard anything about a transmission project that our company recently put over the James River near Williamsburg, Virginia? Okay, a couple heads nodding. So we, we put some new towers in the James River. 
it took six, seven years worth of fighting. Full-page ads in the Washington Post from the National Trust for Historic Preservation saying that we were destroying the landscape that Captain John Smith once canoed past. It's an area that actually always already has some industrial development around it. Here's the best part. About a week ago, the Corps of Engineers held a scoping meeting on an environmental impact statement to determine what the environmental impact would be of putting those towers and that transmission line up, which sounds a little bit backwards because after it went into service, the federal court revoked the permit and said that the court didn't properly do the environmental analysis for the project, so that they now have to go back and do an EIS on the potential environmental impact statement of putting in a line that is already there. <laughs> I'll let that sit in. And the only thing I'll say is infrastructure just hard to build, no matter what it is. Transmission siting, you've heard all that already. I think when you think about generation, when needed to meet load, it seems like everyone can agree on that. Sure, no one wants the lights to go out, but it becomes an argument which kind of generation is best. There is absolutely no agreement on that, and there's a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat. So I think no matter what kind of infrastructure you're talking about building, it's going to be a fight. That's just the state of the world in 2019. It's That's our job. Would you rather build a new transmission line or build a new coal plant right now? <laughs> We're not going to build a new coal plant, so i choose the line. Right, yeah. That's, that's the point I was trying to make. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. In Virginia, in Augusta County, uh, south of Charlottesville, a solar project was just voted down after months wow. and months of uh, arguments and, you know, public meetings that went on for six hours, red shirts, green shirts, signs, the whole works. They killed it. Too We've much. Too much some of that, too. Yeah, too much local opposition. Yeah. yeah. Pete, want to talk a little bit about this. When I first moved to North Carolina, I was surprised at the amount of solar in the state, and I believe it is five and a half gigawatts is about what we're saying, right? Five and a half? Uh, that's, that's probably right, but certainly headed toward a lot more than a that. A lot more than yeah. that. I'm from Louisiana. We have 100 megawatts. <laughs> so well, All states are different. All states are different. The point being that all in the Sun Belt, not all states are the same, so what... And by the way, North Carolina is second only to California by a long shot. So tell us a little bit about how North Carolina just became the solar capital of the East. It said that the two-word answer would be public policy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the state wanted a lot more solar. There was an RPS. Many states have a renewable portfolio standard. North Carolina had one. That was an impetus to build a lot more solar. They had an interest in swine waste and even a carve-out for that, but not much could get built at the time. They also had a state investment tax credit to go with the federal investment tax credit. So you add up all those incentives, and it pushed a lot of solar across. Another form of public policy is how all the public service commissions in all 50 states interpret a federal law called PURPA about the kinds of contracts we have to sign with solar. States that are more liberal or more pro-solar will tend to force their utilities to sign uh, more uh, gracious contracts, longer terms, higher priced, easier to get the projects built. North Carolina was in that mode for quite some time. So that combination pushed a lot of solar through, and that's how North Carolina got to be number two. I'll just add, Georgia doesn't have an RPS and has a pretty conservative legislature and public service commission. We are the fifth fastest growing state and are approaching five gigawatts, and it's coming in at or below our avoided cost. And we're doing it through reverse auctions. Basically, we say we want this much, 
and we make them compete as to who can bring it in, who can do the best engineering and procurement efforts. And they are now they're mad about it, but they're squeezing cost out with their competitors every day. So we it's it's been actually a real good success story. Yeah, Bruce, I want to talk to you about this, and this is actually happening in North Carolina. This is with Align Renewable Natural Gas. It's a waste to energy project where you're taking hog waste, I believe, right? It's a waste energy project, really exciting. And, and anyone who's driven around in North Carolina knows that uh, there's big chicken, big pig, right? So uh, a lot of opportunities there. So tell us a little bit about that, what that means for the future. Yeah, th this is a really interesting part of our, our business right now. And I'll tell you, Align, the name of that, I'm going to brag here. I, I dreamed that up in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep. We were saying we need a name for this business. And uh, I thought, wait, it aligns the interests of farmers. It aligns the interest of food processors, the planet, the climate, consumers. I mean, everybody loves this business where we're taking a waste product, we're cleaning it up, we're making a domestic renewable energy source out of it. And uh, for lack of a better name, the company used my name. So I told my kids that those three kids and this will be my legacies in life. Do you, get a, royalty? All I've Do you get a royalty every time you say it? No, I don't. I don't. But I've said it several times. Yeah, but I'm pretty proud of it. Um, but it, it is, uh, you know, we, we go around building pipelines and power lines and people holler at us. Um, there's really no hollering except for the anti-animal, you know, people on this. Everybody loves it. This technology's been around for a long time, right? Waste energy, landfill gas and all. Uh, it's been dabbled in, but it's never really taken off to, to the point where I we believe we are going to. So we've each put $125 million into this. Uh, we in Smithfield. Smithfield's the largest producer of pork in the world. It would stand that they're also the largest producer of hog waste in the world. These hog farms are numerous and they're huge. Don't think of the kind of farm you might, or that I grew up on, or the the, the bite the part you might be thinking the kind you might be thinking of they're huge eastern north carolina is loaded with them east of 95 so we're going to go out and get a, you know 12 13 14 of these farms together cover the hog the, the waste lagoons collect the, the the gas clean it up we'll put it into the distribution system and it'll be used it is carbon negative because methane if it just releases in the atmosphere as everybody knows it's about 25 times as potent as co2 so when we capture the this and burn it, it is net negative on carbon. And again, it's domestic, it is renewable, and it helps the, the neighborhood. Some of the nuisance issues that you hear so much about it, it does you know keep some of the odor down and the flies away. Also, when the heavy rains come, you can't have a flooding of lagoons, which has been a real problem because the water runs off the covers that go on them. So this is a pretty neat part of our business, and we're going to grow it here, Virginia, Utah, and other places around the country. Dare tremendous opportunities there as well. Uh, that's really exciting. We're going to talk a little bit about something that I spent a couple of years working on, and that is carbon capture and storage. And we'll start with Ronnie because this is uh, managed by a southern company. Duke also has their name on the on the front, as, as, as Pete's pointed out. But I was executive director of a carbon capture and storage association in Texas. About a year ago, I met Frank Morton, who runs this facility. It's in Alabama. It's a DOE research facility operated by a Southern Company. Ronnie, let's start with you. Tell us what CCS means to Southern and why you guys partnered originally to make this facility happen. Yeah, we, like many utilities, have made a commitment to lower no carbon, 20, 30, 2050, respectively. But we started this project before we made that commitment. We imagined that we could take poor quality coal, lignite, 
and capture the CO2 from it and ultimately market that product around the world. We as an industry make big bets. Sometimes they don't work out. Whoever's idea it was to start building serial number 001 of a nuclear plant after 30 years and 001 of a uh, carbon capture, sequestration, natural gas plant at the same time wasn't smart and our stock took a punishment for it. Kemper County in Mississippi was that failure. This project was the test bed for that technology. What we proved in spades is that it's not yet scalable. But it also is a solution to a problem we're all trying to solve, not just domestically but internationally. That's why it's a platform that we open with DOE, other vendors to come in and work on, test technologies. Here, here is the reality for every one of our businesses. If we don't figure out successfully how to capture carbon from gas turbines, we're never going to reach the targets we all aspire to on CO2. This is technology is testing that right now, and we think those kinds of breakthroughs are the only way we're going to hit some of the targets we've set, that research technology. Right, and, and what the Carbon Capture Center is, is it's a functioning coal plant, and basically if you have a new technology, you can come there and test your exactly. stuff, kind of plug into the works, as it That's were. Right. And, and you mentioned Kemper, and uh, one of the things to point out there is, look, I mean, the carbon capture component, there was nothing wrong with that. I mean, that was, that was solid technology, and the and the whole business model to take the CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, which yeah. is what they were going to do with the CO2. All that was intact. So I, I would yeah. hope that maybe some form of that can survive. Yeah, I think so. It was the, the gasification of the lignite and the alloys required to handle it at scale was, was really challenging. Yeah. Well, Expensive. hopefully they make it take another bite at that. Yeah. I'd really like to see that. I did an episode earlier this year. Bill Brown, he runs a company called Net Power, and they are in Durham, across from where the Durham Bulls play. And they've built a 50-megawatt test facility out in Texas near Houston. That's run by Exelon, and they call it Net Power. And what it is is a natural gas carbon capture and storage facility and we talk a lot about carbon capture with relation to coal but a lot of you guys i think agree there probably isn't going to be too many more coal plants built if any but there will be definitely a lot of natural gas facilities built right with storage and with renewables and everything so i guess the question is <laughs> do we still need to consider carbon capture for all the gas that's going to be out there to be built? What's your what's everyone's thoughts on that? Yeah, quickly, I'd just say that you know gas is going to be a bigger play in the future, and uh, capturing the carbon off of it is vital. Yeah. I visited this plant you're talking about yeah, down in Houston cool, yeah. last year. It's it's amazing, and I'm not a technology person, right? I'm a policy person. If what they say they're doing is true and they've mastered it, I mean, they could be very rich very soon, not just from the U.S., but around the world. It is fascinating what they're doing, and I wish I was able to describe it in any respect at all, but <laughs> it looks like they may have found the, the, the silver bullet if they can scale it and, and sell it. Well, check out the episode. We go into detail in the technology if you want to how it works. But uh, basically what they're doing is it's a, they're not catching it on the back end. They're, the way they're combusting the gas is the way that they're able to get the carbon so uh, pure. Um, Pete? Oh, I was just going to chime in agreeing with the point. As an industry, really as a country, we have to do the R&D necessary to develop cost-effective, workable CCUS technology to hit the carbon reduction goals that we all believe we're going to be faced with, that our company's goals to get to where we said we want to go. We need help on a variety of new technologies. 
Let's do another break for questions. Anything on fossil, carbon capture and storage, all the things we just discussed here. Hi. <laughs> The uh, technology of the hog waste, how much does something like that cost to put, to make and assemble and all that kind of stuff? Each company has put in $125 million, it's $250 million overall. And we're going to have about 14 projects, and a project is about 12 to 15 farms that are close enough together to sort of get a density and scale that will work. So I think we're talking single-digit millions of dollars for a project being covering the lagoons, the piping over to a, the equipment that will clean it, and then a pipeline to get it over and to inject it in local distribution. It is not cost competitive with geological natural gas, not even close can't pretend otherwise. There are other attributes and benefits to it, and you have to apply some value to those. The government has done that by virtue of some mandates and some incentives. California, it won't surprise you, you can sell the attributes of RNG produced here into the California market and be handsomely rewarded for that. The molecules don't have to get there. The idea of it does. You put some into a system here and you take it off there. But like everything else in time, in, especially as our two big companies, the most deep pocketed companies, a big energy company and a big you know, egg company coming together will inevitably reduce the cost down on these. This isn't really energy generation per se, but such a huge part of utilities and their future. I did an episode, a company out of San Diego called Nuvi Corporation. They're working on what some of you may have heard about called vehicle to grid, this idea that you can aggregate all the electric vehicles out there and actually take a few kilowatt hours away from the cars and First of all, I guess, what do you think of this technology? Is this in your plans? And what do you guys think that EVs mean for utilities in the future? I mean, huge market potential, right? So the, the market, I think in terms of for kilowatt hour sales, we're very bullish on. I think everyone who's interested in society has a goal to decarbonize, get more CO2 out. Everyone feels like transportation is the next big area to tackle. You know, the energy industry, you to be the leading CO2 producer, we've now been reduced to the point that cars, transportation, airplanes, every, every that sector produces more CO2 than us in the U.S. So there's going to be a lot of pressure to get the carbon out of that. And I think electrification is the answer. Vehicle to grid on that just really quickly. It's an interesting concept. You know, the uh, early uh, problems, I think the vehicles were being charged where the owners plugged them in at night and they were blowing up a lot of transformers because all the rich people in the same neighborhoods bought everything. And everyone said, oh, where you charge them matters. And then they said, well, we want them actually to feed their power back back into the grid in the middle of the day if that's when pricing is high and all the cars are under the office buildings at work and there's nowhere to plug them in. You know, I think the industry as a whole has got to do a lot of work and mobile batteries moving around and how to cost effectively maximize the value you get out of those is is way down the road. Yeah, I can't add anything more to that. I mean, he's right. I mean, we're all working on these problems. Sure. I'd give you two examples to think about. Most of our utilities have programs by which you can donate vacation to one of your aggrieved co-workers, right? Mm -hmm. Show of hands. Have you donated vacation? 
Thank you very much. We, He's one of our guys. We as industry <laughs> lean more towards supply side instead of demand side. And the reason is, is because we can't control demand. We have programs right now that will control through smart meters and other devices on HVAC systems your heating and air system. They're great programs. It's a great, great way to attenuate load, and nobody participates. Until you get beyond that fear of drain down when I need the car, we're not going to break through. So you can't, again, to the earlier point, state of art versus state of We can imagine great ideas, but we have to, like, meet reality in the face and, and deliver that day in and day out. There are 30,000 EVs across the Southern Company footprint. We're aggressively building out uh, technology. We, like I think a lot of states in the South, have rolled back a lot of the incentives that were in place. And and here's here's the troubling story about those incentives. Colleagues of mine would tell me I'm getting free transportation with a leaf. I, I, I lease one for two years and then I turn it in. You know what's happening to those cars? They get sold into the European market to meet their targets. My mother, on a fixed income in Waycross, Georgia, directed her tax dollars to subsidize my colleague to lease free transportation that then got sold in Mannheim exports, Mannheim auto auctions, sent them to Europe. That is a terrible public policy. and They're valuable. They have intrinsic value. We need to let that market grow more, and it's a good market for us. Okay. We're going to get back to our, our buddy Ed McGinnis, and boy, he had an opinion about this one. This was about nuclear closures, specifically premature nuclear closures. For instance, Beaver Valley up in uh, Pittsburgh is closing 30 years early. He talked about Vermont Yankee, which also closed early. And this is what he said about those early closures. This statistic is bananas. Wow. So uh, close a couple of nuclear plants and there goes basically all of the renewables we've built, which is essentially all the renewables we have in this country, wind and solar especially. So thoughts about that, this need to protect the nuclear fleet, what are our thoughts about that? Yeah, your first question to me is, can you build more nuclear if, if we don't complete Vogel? To strain my Tour de France metaphor, let's say, we need somebody to draft behind building new, but if everybody starts falling out of that race, this industry will collapse. Set aside the CO2 issue. We've got to find ways to sustain these projects, and, and it's, and it's it, natural gas being five times less than what it was a decade ago is a problematic issue, but it's a policy matter with which we can deal, and I'm proud to say even New York and other states are very aggressively figuring that out. Well, we, we, we lost one and we kept one. We shut a plant down in Wisconsin. As everybody knows, we could not find anyone to sign a power contract for it, and you could only sit around losing money for so long. The competition from some renewables that at times were cost negative, it's tough to compete with that. Up in Connecticut with our Millstone plant, to their credit, the legislature up there enacted legislation that allows us to keep that plant running for uh, quite a few years to come. It was bipartisan. They really came to grips with the fact that it's the single largest generating station in New England, all clean, very important to Connecticut's economy, and, and they did the right thing in our view. And my comment on that would be, and. Uh, 
an, about 20 states in the U.S., the power market is dominated by who's going to produce at the lowest cost, you know, a competitive market, and that's a really good thing. It's just not always compatible necessarily with public policy. Really cheap natural gas will drive everything else out of business, and if you're worried, oh, geez, what if there is going to be a carbon tax in five years? If I've killed all the plants right before that happens, I've lost this great opportunity. So while some plants have closed, as uh, my colleagues have already indicated, a lot of states see this. They care public policy. They're coming up with subsidies to keep their nuclear plants open until we can see what happens in this market to prevent the worst of this. But a lot of this has happened. It's going to continue to happen to some degree. And it's just ad hoc. Each state's handling it differently. Right. And it's not an issue for really any of our three utilities, given our regulatory structure. Sure. The deregulated markets, right? Texas, yes. all this fun place. <laughs> this is an out there technology. <laughs> nuclear fusion. I always ask people at the very end of my lightning rounds, what do you think of nuclear fusion? Everyone always thinks it's years away, right? And so I think this kind of goes into a bigger question about you were talking about the units that are 01, right? The first of their kind. And as utilities, you kind of need to probably protect the customer, right? So that puts you in a conundrum, right? Someone's got to build the first one, but who needs to do that? So for each of you, all of our panels, all these companies here have done the first of its kind in some respect. What's your thoughts about taking that risk? after the pilot unit's built, someone's gonna build a real commercial unit. What's the utility's role in that, to take that risk to build the first of its kind, hopefully that will benefit everyone? It takes three CEOs to come back around. Uh, I worked with this company when we built Vogel 1 and 2. Three Mile Island happened in the middle of all that and we tore up stuff and rebuilt it and were significantly over cost. I lived in our company when our CEO said we will never build another nuclear plant again. <laughs> three CEOs later we signed a contract and we're working on Vogel 3 and 4. I, I think there is a investor shock, there is a leadership shock that happens when you take on one of these big bets. But that's what we do is we, we imagine a dam in a place where a shoal is and we energize a region. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But the reality is leadership management sometimes takes a pause and it's why we're not looking at VC Summer right this minute because we need to take a little pause. Yeah, we, our, our company, like most companies, we have core values and we just added a fourth core value and it's embrace change. Um, in everything that we do, uh, innovation is a word you hear up and down the hallways. Our company and our board said we are going to reinvent our company in the years and decades to come from the ground up practically. And it's complicated to do while you have to keep the lights on and the gas flowing and uh, at an affordable rate. I think companies like ours are, by achieving the scale that we've achieved, we can take some of the risks that smaller companies can't now. You were able to absorb what you absorbed, the nuclear plants and the gasification plant, it was painful, but it didn't put you into bankruptcy. It might have a smaller, weaker company. Uh, and we're all grateful, uh, all kidding aside, we're grateful that it was Southern Company that stepped out on these. Uh, not many could do what Southern could do with all the challenges. It, it would have probably failed completely in other places. So our job is to go out and, and do the next big thing and probably spend some money that doesn't get a return on it. And you say, okay, that doesn't work. But maybe you hit on some that do work, and it advances the industry for everybody in the U.S. and really around the um, around the globe. 
my thought on that is in order to t undertake that kind of risk, you've really got to build a coalition, including your regulators and your legislators who are going to back you. And they have to understand if it's plan 001, things aren't going to work out exactly the way everyone intended, but it needs to get done. And uh, if you do that effectively, as I think Georgia Power is demonstrating they did, you're going to end up with a plant at the end of that. Again, I think with VC Summer, it was a much smaller company trying to build that. And I think in hindsight, that was difficult for them. But you've got to have that kind of an understanding of the kind of risks you're taking on and have the backing, not just of your board, but of the public service commissions and the legislatures. I want to open it up back up for questions, final questions. I'm going to give everybody, their, these panelists, their final thoughts, but I wanted to put it out there for questions. Any final questions? Anything goes. Mr. Logan. <laughs> if all subsidies and tax incentives and all that kind of stuff is removed, where, does, where do you see nuclear competing? Is it second? Is it third? Is it fourth? You, you see the charge per KWH, nuclear is a relatively small recipient of, of subsidies. I think it still stands very, very well on its own. The low-cost fuel, the length that it'll operate, I think, it, I think if we can sort of think a little longer range, nuclear is going to have a play. I agree. Yeah. What do you think the biggest contributing factor will be to building more nuclear plants in the future? Because right now you've said that you're not really looking for or like you're not looking to build nuclear plants right now and then once vocal gets finished we might build more what's going to be the biggest contributing factor to actually building more plants from my standpoint i think society as a whole has got to get over its momentary flirtation with 100 percent renewables and everyone has to understand what does it really take to operate the grid and in order to get serious about carbon reduction, people have to fundamentally understand that in a way that public policy swings around to support nuclear. I think we're all trying to advocate for that over the longer term. I, I think that's one important thing that has to happen. Yeah. I'll just quickly add, and, and all of that is exactly right, but most utilities are long right now on generation. And that's because efficiency has had growth where tech, other technology has not. We will reach the, the the elasticity of efficiency, and when utilities start having to like go back to the market and figure it out, when we're not build, building experimental billion-dollar projects for six or twelve megawatts of solar or hog farms, I mean when we're when we're building the the, the diesel buses of of our industry, I think that's when we will get back to normalcy about what is the best long-term. We're, long, we're a long-range industry, and I think nuclear, as demand comes back, will be a play. Thank you. Do you think there'll be any future demand for recycled nuclear waste? Physics says, yeah. I'll stop there. Hard to say. Physics says yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a strategy guy. Yeah. Yeah. What he said. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other questions? 
kind of to follow up on the uh, the government incentives question, how much does that actually affect what you guys are doing? Because I mean, on one hand, it's like, all right, you guys can make some serious profit now if you're in the right field and you're in the right incentive. But that at the same time, that government opinion, that public opinion can sway with the drop of a hat. All of it takes is another, you know, what was it, San Bernardino, where they had the big gas loss, and that public opinion can sway against the technology. So I mean, I kind of, I mean, maybe individually differences between you guys, like how I you bet view the it? planning guy can best answer that. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you have to balance things, certainly. Um, we have to make money. We have to sort of increase our earnings every quarter. That's one of the burdens of being a public company in the U.S. So you need to pay attention to what's in the money today. But we talked about we build 40-year assets, 50-year assets. We're doing that now in the face of public policy that almost switches phases and reverses every four years. Uh, that's a, a terrible environment to try to build 40-year assets in. So I think we've got to continue to work on, in order to serve the customers for the long term, we're trying to build the infrastructure that's going to have this very long life. And uh, you have to balance that because technologies come in and out of favor. Policies change. Aliso Canyon, I think you're talking about, you know, scared a lot of the people in California about gas and storage. So you have to be responsive from that standpoint. You do have to make money. You have to increase earnings. That's we're here for the stockholders. But we all build 40-year assets that are going to be there to serve customers who aren't even born yet. And that's what we have to do. That's our jobs. And I'm going to wrap it up here with this discussion is about the future of energy. And one of the things I do at the end of all the podcasts is I go through the 12 or so families of different energy and we do a free word association. How do you think it all fits in the mix? So I'm going to go down the line here. Paint us a picture. What does the future of energy look like? I'll make this quick at a time. Obviously, all of the above, but let me ask a question. Who was born 1989 or after? Raise your hand. Okay. This will not matter as much to you as it does to the folks who were born before the fall of the Iron Curtain and the end of the Cold War. Nuclear is not central in the forefront on those 11 states in D.C. that took risk on deregulation. It's not in the forefront, and we're deferring it in terms of the, the make-move cell utilities. It has got to be in the mix. And the reason is, for those folks born before 1989, or maybe if you watched an episode of The Americans, <laughs> Russia and China are not good players. And they are aggressively building out nuclear as we speak. Einstein wrote a great letter that was secreted to FDR in 1938, imagining the exact ecosystem that exists between universities, the nuclear labs with DOE and our commercial industry now. It, he, he, master, he was a smart guy, apparently. He masterfully imagined that it, for such, for such a device that could be so destructive, we needed an ecosystem to sustain security, technology, and expertise around it. Then you had Eisenhower, who convened a meeting, interestingly enough, at the Masters Golf Tournament, talk about how we are going to basically take this industry forward. As we shy away from nuclear, and, and China and Russia are building out nuclear plants in the Middle East, or hope to, or in Zambia, and they say, we'll build the technology, 
but we're going to be the supplier of the fuel for the next 80 years. That is a stranglehold on those nations ideologically, imperialistically, I call it energy imperialism, in a way that, that we and your children and grandchildren will pay a price for if we do not get back to the business of nuclear energy in this United States. The reason I'm passionate on it and the reason my wife rolls her eyes at about this moment is because I've been refining that monologue for about 11 years. But uh, uh, a lady who won the Nobel Prize with Al Gore agrees with me. Sam Nunn former senator who works with Ted Turner on anti-proliferation agrees with me. Rainbow Push agrees with me. And the leadership of Southern Company and our leadership within the state agree. And it's about time y'all start getting in front of me because I'm getting tired of peddling. <laughs> well put. You should have batted cleanup with that because that's a, that would be a great closing. Um, I, I have no idea what the future of energy is going to look at, look like, and anyone who thinks they do uh, is lying to you. In this day and age, I almost say which state uh, you know in the country. New York just enacted legislation that will make it just about impossible or illegal to burn gas. I think by 2040, Berkeley last week banned any new housing, restaurants, businesses from going in and having natural gas appliances. In Utah, where we are the gas utility and pipeline company, they enacted legislation that uh, subsidizes our ability to go out and lay gas lines to reach more communities who are suffering and it is believed they will benefit if they can get natural gas delivered to them. In eastern North Carolina, and Tammy, I'm not going to get away without saying Atlantic Coast Pipeline once uh, today. Our three companies here uh, are trying to get the Atlantic Coast Pipeline constructed. We have local communities, economic development authorities, county commissioners begging to get the Atlantic Coast Pipeline in so they can get natural gas and get some hope for an economic future because every one of those counties has lost an opportunity because of not having the gas needed where they needed it at the pressure, at the price that could attract industry. So, I mean, absolute split personality in this country in most everything going on in our life today, our politics, and that it's reflective in energy policy. But I guess in the long term, it's going to be more diverse. It's going to be more distributed. It's going to be more complicated. It's going to be more disruptable and more vulnerable because of the technologies involved, the Internet of Everything. That can't end well for distributive energy technologies. It's more complicated than the days of big central power stations and us running lines to them. Salsa. And from my standpoint, uh, I would say uh, look at 2050, middle of the century, we're all going to have systems with low to no carbon in our mix. And so we're going to have, I like all of the above, we're going to have nuclear. I think even with SLR, we're going to need to be building new nuclear before 2050 for sure. I think there's going to be a role for gas with CCS. I think we will continue to add renewables. We'll need storage for that. The two-way grid and all that, I think ultimately it's going to take years to make that work, but by 2050 we'll sort of have it worked. I think part of that also is I think transportation will be largely electrified. I think we'll be selling probably double the power that we're selling now. I think that for consumers, they might not be paying much more in energy for their energy. They might be paying a lot more of it to us than to BP and Shell and others. But, you know, there's a lot to be seen between now and then. But that's kind of where I think we're going to be in the middle of the century. 
Yeah. Like we used to always say in Texas with uh, then Governor Rick Perry, everything, everywhere, all the time. And boy, this was a real blue ribbon panel. I got, I, I, I really do appreciate y'all coming out on short notice, to be honest with you. And hey, all you guys, thank you so much for your questions and everything. This was fantastic. And a little plug for the podcast. Get on there. Check it out. We're in a show that's kind of matching the logo. So, hey, with that, we're going to wrap it up. And we will leave it with that. Thank you so much. So thank you to our panel. That was Bruce McKay from Dominion Energy, Ronnie Just from Georgia Power, and Peter Toomey from Duke Energy, who were kind enough to join me for my panel last July on the future of energy for the North American Young Generation in Nuclear. Thanks to Jim Beamer at Dominion, Mike McGarry at Nuclear Energy Institute, and Linda Norberg at Duke for help with all our guests. And special thanks to Tyler Andrews at NAYGN for inviting me to host the panel. I hope I did okay. And I also want to dedicate this special episode to my number one fan, my dad, Stephen Dauenhauer, who we lost earlier this month. Dad was so supportive of this podcast and what I was trying to do. He was a microbiologist in Shreveport. He loved trains and movies. Energy wasn't his passion. It's mine. But I think it says a lot about a parent who shares their kids' passions as if they were their own. Without fail, I'd receive texts from him after every episode dropped telling me what he found interesting about the interviews. Now, I know I'm not going to get those texts anymore, and that's going to be tough. So if you have a minute, please feel free to drop me a line on energy-cast.com. We can also be found at Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 65. Be sure to join us next week when we meet the company bringing interchangeable fuel cells to the market. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>